Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Abib. Friends, I've spoken a lot this year about what we need to move beyond to meet the challenges of our time and the challenges of the future and how to thrive and flourish. Uh, All the early episodes of this year were part of a series called How to Live Beyond, where I talked about traditions and techniques and self-help stuff, spiritual stuff that I thought had really important lessons to impart to us, but that we could linger in too much or wallow in and could drive us deeper into our problems. That included stuff like manifestation, abundance, money, magic kind of stuff, uh, sorcery, casting spells, entheogens, hallucinogenic drugs, wellness, and more. But what should we move towards? I didn't talk about that directly. I mean, it came up on all those episodes, but I didn't do this kind of coherent bringing together of a path, especially in terms of spirituality. And another thing I didn't talk about on those How to Live Beyond episodes was what all of those things I said we need to move beyond had in common, and that is materialism. And as someone whose politics are most deeply aligned with the left, spirituality is basically missing. And where it arises, if it's not outright attacked or laughed at or ridiculed, it is generally subjugated to being part of the political economy. That is to say, it's understood as rising out of material conditions, not something embracing, holding, and expressing materiality, or even that it could just be metaphorical or just kind of a another self-help sort of move, which is, in a way, just a kind of covert way of dismissing it all or laughing at it all or mocking it all or just being like, well, yeah, that's kind of secondary. So perhaps I should have included forms of materialistic politics uh, in that How to Live Beyond series, the kinds of politics that deny the importance of a spiritual pillar within each and every one of us that keeps us aligned and upright, or a spiritual light that we stand within that can illuminate where we're going as we walk, as we encounter one another. What can help us face what we need to face in ourselves, in culture, in politics, in the economy? So here is a new series of episodes on occult and esoteric Christianity, an evolving tradition that offers vitalizing insight into how to move forward. Across these episodes, I'll be talking about various streams and fruits of occult and esoteric Christianity, as well as some of its key figures. Rather than presenting the typically dogmatic, dominating, totalizing form of Christianity, which unfortunately is what you probably are <laughs> the most familiar with, um, and you know the kind that is also the kind of Christianity which is always in danger of being seized by people, especially conservatives, with power um, to harm others or to control the world. This series will present a different and truer form. Uh, the kind of Christianity that is open, wounded, individuated, and powerless. A tradition that relates to other spiritual paths without seeking to control or diminish them. To begin this series, it seemed important for me to ask, (laughs) for myself and for all of you, why esoteric Christianity at all? 
But before I talk about my guest, Jonah Evans, who I start this series with and discuss this question with, I wanted to say a few things about this esoteric Christianity, just to give you a quick rundown on some of its aspects. This is a Christianity that accepts that it has a relationship to other spiritualities. It is a Christianity that understands that we are inhabitants in a landscape of beings. Not just as charismatic Christianity may have us believe that there's a powerful God versus all the devils and all that, and so you have to be a spiritual warrior and et cetera, et cetera, but a world that is actually constituted by beingness, by spiritual beings. Maybe that doesn't make sense, but that will unfold across these episodes. So just hold that. <laughs> it's it's also a Christianity that understands that in some ways the Bible is not the best book to understand Christianity. <laughs> um, that might sound counterintuitive at first, but we can see through occult and esoteric Christianity that the people who lived around Christ didn't have access to the tool of the Bible, of course, but more importantly, that they were engaging with esoteric truth by the encounter with this mystery being and the super sensible experiences that those encounters brought, which means that though the Bible and religion are both paths, uh, they're also obstructions to finding spiritual truth and opening our hearts. So how do we find the path by overcoming obstruction? And, you know, how do we obstruct ourselves when we're trying to find the path? This is a Christianity in which everyone has already been saved. Christ is a being that happened to the earth. And it's a Christianity in which, as you hear Jonah say, no one is lost. Which, how different is that from a lot of the Christianities that <laughs> you might, might uh, know about? in which no one is lost, but in which we can yet improve our way of living and our relationships with each other and the entire planet by deepening our relationship with this mystery being, this Christ being, this being which is an active spiritual presence who is both within and without, both meeting us individually and happening to all of us as a cosmic event. It's a Christianity not interested in blind faith, but in a commitment to who we are and to a star whose five lines are marked truth, love, wisdom, goodness, and righteousness. It is a Christianity whose deepest principles are freedom and compassion. In other words, really, that's love. So, I asked someone who works daily in one stream of this esoteric Christianity, uh, which is the Christian community, which offers Christian services and gatherings based on the religious renewal effort offered to ministers and theologians by the occultist Rudolf Steiner. Jonah Evans is a reverend and seminary director in the Christian community in Toronto. He is the co-host of one of my very favorite podcasts, right up there with <laughs> Weird Studies, The Light in Everything. Uh, he co-hosts that with Patrick Kennedy, who um, will also be in this series of episodes. And he helps edit the series of Rudolf Steiner lectures offered by the Christian community. And he also gives workshops and conferences around the world. This episode with Jonah 
gives a picture of his experience of receiving esoteric Christianity into his life and why he decided to let it in, as well as many Christian mysteries, like why does the name of Christ have any power spiritually outside the Christian tradition? Because it seems like it does, but do you have to believe in it, or does it just work on its own? Whatever. Does hell exist? Um, what role do dark forces play, and how do we recognize them without being, yeah, like I said before, in that spiritual warrior mode where you think you're, you know, <laughs> confronting darkness all the time in this hyper-masculine uh, way, which I just find a bit ridiculous. Why is there this mystery of two Jesuses? Now, if that <laughs> sounds completely, uh, you know, new to you, it's an interesting mystery, and maybe we'll go into it more and more uh, across this series. If you like this series, you should know that last year I did a series on the same topic, um, maybe with a bit of a different aim, but that started on episode 181. All the episodes of this show are free. All 220 so far, and who knows, 80 to go, maybe more, I don't know, but they're all free. So your contribution to the show via Patreon is vital. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. It's pretty self-explanatory. You go there, you pledge an amount for each month, or you can do a one-time annual pledge for as much as you want um, for a total amount. And it's through that contribution that this show exists. So if you are someone who supports it, thank you. If you're not, not yet please do consider supporting it now. It makes a big difference. You can go there now and do it. Um, the support you give is not to get anything because all the episodes are free. It's all out there. But it is to contribute to something you find meaning and value in and to show that you feel a sense of kinship with this show, with me or with what's happening on the episode, with the guests, with the listening and sharing and contemplation that rises out of these podcast episodes. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Beeb. All right, so my first episode in a series on occult and esoteric Christianity, my conversation with Reverend Jonah Evans. Here we go. <laughs> everybody it's against everyone with connor abib hello jonah evans well it's hello good to be here <laughs> i just got off the plane <laughs> he did so if we have a very sleepy conversation about christ <laughs> that's his fault listen i thought we would start with just saying why esoteric christianity is my question for this mm. episode mm. um so i wanted to talk about your path to it but I don't want like a bio exactly. Like, t tell me how you came to be interested in whatever. Mm -hmm. But I know that you have a varied uh, spiritual background filled with lots of different kinds of encounters and experiences. And I think a lot of those probably will resonate with people who are listening. Um, but maybe they haven't, won't, or haven't yet found you know, uh, any kind of resonance with 
Christianity or whatever, but you did find your way through um, a lot of other experiences. So can we just sort of talk, let's start there. Because mm. I'm in a similar kind of vibe, I guess. Mm-hmm. So you mean like some of my pre-Christian <laughs> yeah. experiences? Yeah. So yeah, uh, BC. BC. <laughs> Not before children. Well, I guess yeah. it's before children too. But yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, before Connor is what that's before says, Connor, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I guess my first love, in a way, was Taoism. Actually, in the in the Tao Te Ching, I I had kind of broken my meniscus in my knee playing basketball when I was sixteen. And I was laying in bed for a long time, super bored. And my father sent me a book, Tao Te Ching, and by Lao Tse. And that really lit my f- the flame in me consciously of the spiritual life. And I read it again and again. I was fascinated with this idea of Wu Wei, which was like how to be in harmony with all things and how to um, align myself with, with the spirit in a harmonious way. And that was really my first inspiration uh, to be a spiritual disciple was to find this true harmony with the spirit and with reality and so that then led me to things like Zen and Buddhist meditation and a martial art called Aikido. So before we move um, from there, yeah. Um, the so you had an injury, mm. and then one I'm interested in why you think your dad gave you mm. the Tao Te Ching. Um, but then I also want to talk about the Tao Te Ching a little bit mm. in relationship to the stream of Christianity that you're really in now, because there are some similarities, but there's also a way in which through occultism, esoteric Christianity, they, they kind of fit together historically in interesting ways that... I don't know what Dallas would think of mm. how, it's, how it's expressed. Mm. Um, but even also in certain figures, um, which maybe I'll bring up Wang Liping a little bit. Um, mm. But do you know why, or do you have a sense of why your father gave that to you, or maybe why it came to you at that time in your life? It's a very good question. I mean... <sighs> I think my father at one point in his life was touched by it and he had a feeling that I would be at that point in my life as a 16-year-old depressed in bed. And I don't know that there's any deeper reason than that, but he sent it to me. And so I I feel it was guided, even if he doesn't know why he sent it right, to me. Right, right. But it was very important. Um, And if I look back now, I can really feel I had to get to know that as a quality, actually, of what I would call the Christ impulse 
way before Christianity. Yeah. yeah. So I have a similar moment, but mm. yeah, with with the with Taoism in a sort of uh, side entrance way. But yeah, go ahead. Like it was one of the first um, entryways to the spirit. It 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 prepared the the room for for Christ in a way, right? I would say the same thing. Yeah, yeah for sure. So for me, it was much later in life encountering uh, Byron Katie, um, who, you know, her husband, Stephen Mitchell, is one of the main translators of the day. That was right? my translation. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, her whole thing, the work is, she wrote a book with Stephen Mitchell, but mostly it's her, I think, called uh, A Thousand Names for Joy, which is mm. about comparing sort of her path with Taoism. Mm. And so much of it, you know, her, her first book is called loving what is. And so as when I think about that moment that you were in, in bed, yeah. you know, and your father giving you this loving what is book, um, you know, the more you struggle, the more you're, you're, you'll be stuck in the mire. Um, yeah. You know, and I, I think about that, like it was a cleaning out of a room, yeah. um, a kind of emptiness, it, it wasn't. It, I, I don't really like the term emptiness so much because of a connotation for that that doesn't sit well with me. But it was. Mm. It was making making empty what needed to be made empty, so it could serve as the vessel in a way. Yeah, and and in a way, I would say to add on to that harmony that I was talking about, this emptiness or vessel ready to receive, which I I really looking back, related to this effortless effort mm. that's so inherent in the Tao Te Ching, to, to do something but not do. Mm-hmm. And, and I can see right now, you know, in my life, that was such a foundation for the mysteries of effort that is also able to receive the grace of God. Mm. Yeah, I love it. I'm, you know, in Valentin Tomberg's mm. Meditations on the Tarot, the first meditation is on the yes. magician card. Yeah. And the thing that characterizes the magician, he says, is concentration without effort. That's it. Yeah, concentration without effort. And so, so, so already for people listening, I know that this is, you know, kind of kicking off a series of episodes on Christianity, and you might not be Christian, and you might even be kind of repulsed by Christianity. But mm. I just want you to hear <laughs> some of the streams that are already coming in. The mm. Tao, the mm. Tarot, um, the self, a self-help guru, you know, I mean, all, all these things start to come in. And so rather than, you know, some discourses around Christianity and Christ where it's the idea is to dominate these other streams, to, to wipe them out, actually we're beginning here with how do these things meet? How do they come together? How do they offer themselves to each other in a way and, and, and unfold in us as processes, not so we can destroy or eliminate any of the other streams, but how we can find ways to relate to them. That's it. And that's how I really hold my journey. My beginning journey was to, to begin to be, become familiar with how to have effort and be receptive at the same time and how to 
have a self, but be in harmony with the world or with community or with the other. And those were very much the foundations of looking back now of what my heart just leapt for Mm -hmm. in the Taoist tradition. And then, then also just in the Eastern philosophy and, and then it graduated more into the Zen practice Mm. for me. Well, we'll go to Zen and then, uh, vision quest yes, territory, no, <laughs> um, which I've also had my experience mm. with. Um, but I wanted to talk about this Wang Li Ping character okay. a little bit. Uh, do you know who this is? This, I don't actually. So he's a living, uh, figure. This is a Taoist wizard is what, what people re- refer to him to. Yeah. There's a really beautiful book called opening the dragon gate, which is about, his experience of being sort of put into this position as this spiritual master. So why I'm bringing him up, first of all, is to say that in our understanding, I'm assuming Jonah shares this understanding with me, but I know he does. So, (laughs) But in our understanding, there are different rays, different paths of spiritual development, practice, leaders, um, masters, and beings, and while there is a center point, a, a Christ center point in a lot of ways, even for traditions that don't identify as Christian or don't need to, because Christ is like a, almost you could say a cosmic law. It's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'm trying. I'm trying to be as uh, appeasing as possible sure, to everybody. Can be understood that way. Yeah, <laughs> listening, yeah, yeah. but so there's this ray or this tradition Mm. of these Eastern of certain Eastern philosophies, wisdom, traditions, practices. And in that school, Wang Li Hang is the public figure because they they will often have one or two public figures and then maybe six hidden ones, five hidden ones. Mm. But Wang Li Ping is, you know, quite present as a public one. And he went through a lot of these initiatory rights, trials, developmental things that you can see in Western esoteric traditions and in other traditions. But there's a difference, right? I mean, it's Taoism. It's not, it's not the path that you're... So can we talk about maybe instead of... I, I want to make sure I'm not giving the impression as we go on that they're all the same. Right. And then this sort of Joseph Campbell way, which I reject, mm. but that they relate to each other. Mm. So I just wanted to put that mm. there um, <laughs> before yeah. we continued. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a good point. I mean, the way I just described it, like the effort that is also able to receive something as a gift of grace. That's me pulling out the archetypal impulse that also connects to the Christian path or the harmony, the learning to be in as a self, to be in harmony with others. That's me pulling out the kind of archetypal essence of why I think I needed that. 
But then if I get into like I was for a little while into like all of the different aspects of Taoism, like the herbs and the kind of ascetic practices and the sexual uh, practices, those are all very different from the practice of spiritual path of esoteric Christianity in many ways. But, and, and I, and I tried that for a little bit and then it just fell away from, Mm -hmm. from my life. I, I, it didn't bring anything to me. Why why do you think? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I really don't. I just, I just, I didn't find it to be nourishing, I guess. Um, I felt a little bit of power and I worked with a little bit of power by, you know, saving um, certain uh, kind of semen saving uh, yeah. sexual practices. The Western term is like karitsa, right? Like that's what they call it. There you go. Yeah. But, but it, it just fell away. It just didn't, it didn't, it didn't bring me what I needed. Let's yeah, it well, way. it wouldn't have worked for me because <laughs> because I'm gay, right? So the yeah. so the the Taoist yeah. principle of like men and men is that they keep amplifying each other's energy when okay. they have sex. Okay. So like you actually just kind of get an easy out if you're gay. <laughs> Taoism, <laughs> unfair advantage. Though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that all Taoists would agree with what I just said. Right, but that's what right. that's some yeah. interpretations of it. Yeah. Um, so, okay, and just to say mm. that these Eastern, uh, these Eastern tradition, wisdom traditions, and mysteries, um, there's a way in which I'm not saying a person. This is a very, very tricky. Mm. <laughs> Uh, ground that I'm about to traverse here. I'm not saying that a Western person couldn't engage and imbibe it and then live that path because each religion and, or, or spiritual pathway or tradition is a path to a different being who is an aspect or a, a, a refraction of God. But there is, I think something about, a lot of cultural, um, cultural karmic consciousness, whatever that makes it harder to enter into those mysteries. I think for people that don't grow up, um, with a certain kind of surrounding or, or perspective or intimacy with the tradition already. I could see that. Do you, how do you feel about that? I could see that. I think there is there's something to that where you grow up the language the culture the the milieu of the people I would think has a, a strong influence but but again as far as for me individually it's a mystery to me why certain things just fell away and I was led to other things it's the mystery of my destiny, I guess. Mm. Um, I certainly didn't say, okay, this, at a certain point, this is not good and this is good. It just kind of fell away. Yeah. I uh, Yeah. I think maybe a way to look at that for me, I'm not putting this, I'm not overlaying this on your history, but sometimes, you know, we, we go through a lot of seeking, although I suppose this book was just given to you, but seeking meeting different spiritual pathways and traditions. 
And sometimes we can feel that there's a rightness to them because of what we're talking about, because uh, the way is the way is shown or prepared or the room is emptied or the, you know, the, the concentration without effort is, Mm. is, you know, shown or whatever by the presence of different spiritual beings in our lives. Some beings will come and alight in our lives to help guide us towards the tradition that we're meant to be a part of. Mm. So rather than viewing them as mistakes or dead ends or cul-de-sacs, we can actually see that we've been assisted to find where we're meant to go. Oh, I see. Yeah. That I, I, I really believe in the weaving of karmic destiny mm. and I believe there's a weaver and I believe there's a wisdom and even things that maybe you look back and think, well, I was a little off base there. I was a little, little exaggerated in that. There's always a gift also mm-hmm. in whatever path. And very often people that I talk to see, oh, I needed that so that I could come to this. And I needed that because I, so I could come to this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think the perspective of I'm in the darkness with certain paths I'm condemned so to speak is is not honoring the Lord of destiny if I can put it that way mm-hmm. weaving your life that's right yeah hmm and also lifetimes right because it's you know, you can feel, I'm sure some people feel lost their entire incarnation, their entire lives. It can be. But don't fret. <laughs> <laughs> but there's something in that lostness. There's, yeah. There's something in Absolutely. the darkness that is calling um, yeah. f- for a kind of discovery. Um, and, and and I'm also also not saying that there are not errors, um, that, that there are not mistakes, that, that there aren't really difficult destinies that that are taken up and chosen that's also true but all errors all deviations i would say have a gift in them mm-hmm. and can no one is lost mm-hmm. that's a radical thing for a priest to say mm. it's the opposite <laughs> right of what what people hear very often from priests. That's right. If you have a certain ideology, you're condemned or not. Mm. But the perspective here that I would say is more, there's always the path of death and resurrection, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, There's always the gold in the ore. There's always the light in the darkness. Yeah, it's... I think Rudolf Steiner has this thing, which I've brought up on the show before, and I don't remember where it is. So good luck searching for it amongst the <laughs> thousands of lectures. But he says something like, look, you, you, you know, really the worst thing that anybody can do is black magic. Um, mm. And he has a very specific, it, it might seem vague from the writing, but it's quite specific, I think, idea of what that is. But, you know, it's 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 worse than doing all kinds of horrible material world sort of things. But don't worry. If you do it, you'll come back, get another chance, you know, to... You'll have to face your own karma, which is not going to be pleasant. Um, and by the way, 
we all have to go through these dark lifetimes because it's actually part of incorporating the totality of, you know, God and the universe into our being so we can develop. But, you know, you could come back and do it again. And then if you do it again and again, well, you get 13 lifetimes. (laughs) And if you do 13 lifetimes full of black magic, then your soul falls into oblivion. Um, and, you know, he doesn't say this, but I mean, my extrapolation from that is my, or my interpretation of that is that actually, because we're all so dependent on each other, if one person did that, it would create a black hole that would kind mm. of obliterate the universe, which is mm. what actually people who are doing black magic mm. are ultimately aiming to do is mm. create a kind of anti Christ and anti universe, mm. you know, uh, or, or assist the antichrist into creating an anti cosmos. So, no one's done it so far as I can tell, unless we're living in that and I just don't know it. <laughs> but, but the point being like, even the things you do that would make you lost are not even so horrible. They, they can slow you up. They can kind of mess with your karma. They can create suffering for you the next time around, but you really have to try really, really, really hard mm. to <laughs> make yourself lost in a way. Um, so when you say no one's lost, I might say there are some people who want to be lost or are trying to be lost, but they're, but that's very rare. Yeah. And I mean, I guess I'm also just, this is something Rudolf Steiner said to the priests in some of the cycles that aren't yet published in English, but published in German. And he said, the only thought that is not allowed, <laughs> which is an interesting thing in itself is that a human being is lost. And I think what he means by that is not that it's not possible to do what you just said, which is to kind of do so much black magic that you go into, but that at this point in evolution, Christ is so with us, with every human, even in the the most difficult karmic circumstances. He's not abandoning anyone. And for the priest to hold that consciousness that there is Christ is always with us till the end of earth evolution. And it's only at the end of earth evolution, after these many, many lifetimes, if the soul decides to abandon the true human being. But that's a whole thing that's, that's only a possibility right now in the far future. Yeah. So let's take that to Zen. Mm. Okay. This next step, because what I'm hearing in that is first, it, there's that beautiful uh, understanding that kick and scream and be as much of a brat as you want. And still Christ will just patiently be with you. Whereas Zen is kind of a celebration of the petulance in a way um it's kind of it's kind of a uh, what is it what did someone say once relishing what's the what's the uh hari krishna relishing the the pastimes mm. um that you <laughs> that you're just sort of like doing all this kind of ridiculous disavowal jokestering absurdity this is one version of zen at least but knowing also that you are embraced as you do it 
Mm. It's a kind of recognition of that. So that that's the first thing I think of when you say, oh, then I move into Zen in a way. Interesting. Well, <clears throat> I mean, my experience and the path that I was led on also by the teachers that I was in contact with then, mine was more coming from this kind of effortless effort that you described and this fascination with this harmony principle, Wu Wei, I then became really interested in, well, what is? Mm. What is being? Mm. How do I get in touch with really the essence of reality? What is? And that was really my orientation to Zen, which was trying to kind of come into a state of being where I could let everything else fall away and find the essential core. Mm -hmm. And that was really the practices that I was led into, meditative practices, that really sought to try to find this state of kind of blissful, mindful attention mm. in which everything else falls away. And you do kind of have this experience of a, a consciousness that is peaceful, centered, and in a kind of emptiness, sort of, but everything is falling away. It rises and falls away. And the blissfulness comes out of your own sense of being. That was my doorway into Zen. Um, that I think, when I look back, was very helpful in me kind of coming to a core of my being that I could attend, concentrate on something, stay centered for a long period of time, and just s come into a kind of peace. Yeah, maybe I'm, uh, I'm projecting my sense of Zen from my own experience, which was not with Zen. The closest thing I would say in my life was really punk rock. Like, oh. That there was a sense of, absolute uh, what do I say absolute possibility and uh, refutation at the same time that it was bursting into we can do whatever we want we don't have to do it they say we can do whatever they want we don't have to do it others say and this sort of moving in and out with this loud punctuated music and you know, losing yourself and then regaining yourself and losing yourself and mm. regaining yourself. This, you know, even if you just sort of look at people shoving each other at a punk show, it's like, I'm gone into the mass. Here I am again. Um, my boundary has been touched. I can see myself again. Right. And so this kind of rising and falling beneath the surface, I think is, mm. you know, and, and then the kinds of, friendship and solidarity and community that came out of that rising and falling. Um, and then of course, you know, within punk, there's this straight edge movement, which is quite monastic in its way. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't eat animals, you know, yeah. that this extreme sect of punk Buddhism or whatever you want to call it comes out of that, yeah. you know, um, has its own ascetic practices as well. And then the bands are not signing to major labels. Don't take money. Don't do this. Don't do that. That yeah. it all has this kind of purification aspect going on at the same time. You know? Not selling out. 
Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No one cares about that part anymore, but yeah, <laughs> in music really, but yeah. Interesting. Well, there's, there's elements that connect there. Yeah. This kind of f- getting in touch with the self that is peripheral, that's ultimately not real. And then finding your core self again, that, that dance was very much a part of my experience of Zen, but it came to a limit. It ultimately left me with the question, am, is my consciousness the only reality? Is the, the abyss, the emptiness that they describe, is all the images and sense of otherness all just something that is of maya? Is, is there anything real beyond my mindful consciousness? That became a question that led me to three other very important teachers in my life. So that was my bridge. I met Georg Kulavind, who was a anthroposophical author, Dennis Kloschek, and a man named Friedemann Schwarzkopf. Also, Orlin Bishop was in there as a, as a kind of mentor. He's another guy out on the West Coast of the United States. Love him. But that was the question that arose in me. Am, is my consciousness all there is? This blissful sense of consciousness? But is there anything, are there any other beings that are real, uh, spiritually? <laughs> so, I feel like we've jumped a little bit because mm. <laughs> people are like, oh yeah, Taoism, Zen Buddhism. <laughs> you've moved into much more obscure territory for people that some something that i mean this this is something just to acknowledge is like that what you just moved into is actually not readily available to most people now it is of course you can go on amazon and order the book but most people don't know about it they haven't heard about it right i mean maybe you know if you live in in a part of switzerland or you live in a part of Austria, Germany, or whatever, maybe, but mostly it's not actually available. So how did you even go there? I met these people. This you is the them. thing. It was like a destiny thing. I had these questions that were just arising out of my practice. What is it? Am I the only reality? Is my consciousness, is this bliss all there is? What? How can I know something other than me? And then I met these humans in my life. Georg Kulavind, Friedemann Schwarzkopf, Orlin Bishop, Dennis Kloschek. And they were able to say, hey, uh, in conversation with them, hey, there's this thing called anthroposophy. And it's a path to know beings other than yourself in the spiritual world. And I was like, Really? That's my question. Because, and here's another piece, I had grown up in the anthroposophical world, in the Waldorf world, and my mom had had study groups for all my childhood, and they would always talk about elemental beings and angels and archangels, and I thought they were all crazy. So I rejected all of that. In my early, te- in my late teens, and did this Eastern thing. But then, with 
with my question arising from my spiritual practice and encountering these humans that were like, there's a way to authentically know something other than yourself. Mm. That's what intrigued me. Yeah, it's so interesting because that was all kind of known by me when I was younger. Interesting. Right? All the beings. I knew that that was there. In fact, when I remember, I mean, being very young and I could see the beings that were making up the air. Wow. I can still kind of do it a little bit. But so you you already had a gift of clairvoyance in a way. I don't, see, yeah. I, w- I wouldn't even call it a gift or, mm-hmm. or clairvoyance. It was just because there was no framework to meet me, it would come and go. Mm. It would be like, oh, well, there's that. You know, I, I just, it was just part of childhood. It wasn't remarkable. It just was. No, yeah. except, except that it was remarkable in the sense that I was like, oh, maybe other people can't see this. But it's not like, you know, when people talk about being psychic as kids and then, you know, they grow up with this gift or whatever, it wasn't like that. It wasn't like I knew that this dramatically different. It was more like, okay, I have a picture of reality that who knows if it's how real it is, how imagined it is. Like, I don't actually know, but these funny kinds of ways of seeing and encountering the world just keep showing up. And, you know, I mean, very, my first memory is of a dream, for instance. So like even my very first memory was I was eaten by a fox that was eaten by a wolf that was eaten by a bear. And then I woke up. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So like the whole, my whole lifetime is it, but there was no, um, so that question that you were asking was kind of like, well, yeah, there are these other beings. I don't really know how to make them show up. I don't really know how to make myself see them, make the encounter happen. Right. But I do also have this question with me, which is like, how do I know if I'm good? Mm. How do I know if I'm doing right? How do I know if I'm okay? And that was, I would say, more... And and how do I meet that with a kind of warmth? I I wouldn't have phrased it that way in my head, but like, why, when I go looking for this answer, does it seem like I'm met with cold authoritarianism rather than like a warm kind of love? So it was about love Mm. and goodness, Mm. not about... So we have this... So I'm just interested in this this Mm. difference here because it's funny to me that you should ask that question. Um... And I also see the 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 necessity of it, and mm. also what anthroposophy has given me in relation to the answer to that question. Mm. But mm. yeah, and that uh, yeah, it's fascinating. Also, the the differences in our experiences. Then you know, from what you said about are there others? Mm. Did that is that a question of loneliness? Well, it could be. It could be. I think there was probably some some something of that in my experience that gave rise to that question, um, because there is a kind of consciousness that can be just locked in on itself and not be able to bridge the gap. So, or 
destroy the gap, so to destroy the bridge. For example, I've done exercises with, with people where you're having a conversation and you try to, you go in with the mode that this person is an idiot. They have nothing to say. That mode of consciousness will actually close down any revelation that wants to come out of this other as who they are. Whereas what you mentioned, if I come, if I come into this conversation with you with the gesture of deep interest and love toward who you are and what this conversation can be, loving interest, it actually creates a bridge that can give rise to the experience. There's another here. And there, we're, we're communing, we're finding each other. And maybe even a third presence can then come in through this bridge of love. But that doesn't have to be. It can also be ignored, not gone across, or destroyed. Yeah, that's the that's something that Slava Zizek points out about the difference between Buddhism and Christianity is about you know the Buddha having his eyes closed and Christ having his eyes open that there's a, a an insistence in some ways in Christianity and he's talking about this from at mm. least he claims a secular <laughs> viewpoint that the otherness um, that's required from Christianity is you know something that we need now is to be able to meet the other experience the other through separation and then doing that work of meeting the other across that divide which is why yeah. you know when when I see people re-nationalizing or racializing Christ, look, I have it kind of easy because I'm <laughs> I'm Syrian, so I'm basically, you know, <laughs> I basically am the same ethnicity <laughs> as Christ. So I got a little easy, so I could just say this. Yeah. But the but the idea is that you know if you have Black Jesus or Indian Jesus or Aryan Jesus or whatever that somehow that brings a kind of closeness through representation. But sometimes I'm like, mm. I, I understand the impulse there and I'm not condemning the impulse necessarily, but I do think that mm. seeing a separate being that you have a hard time identifying with mm. and then trying to create that bridge is actually the ev- evocation or evincing or whatever mm. of, of his presence mm. is bridging that otherness, that separateness. Right. There's an otherness that is not hard to relate to in reality. Um, but it's still an otherness, which I think is also important in the sense of, in my experience with Zen, I came to a sense of bliss, a, a sense of peace, but I didn't experience love in that practice. I didn't experience, because I think my experience is love necessitates an I and thou, a relationship, a flow between two, at least. 
Yeah, so you're bringing me to, we'll get back on the track of the spiritual path and those four figures in your life as Mm, well. But mm. when I was in New York um, doing the event for Hawk Mountain at the Strand, I was keenly aware that I was probably in a sort of higher-minded audience. The, The place was packed. I didn't know most of the people there. So some of the readings I did on that tour, I knew... 90% 90% of the people in the room. But some of the bigger ones like this, I I knew almost no one. Mm. And so I was kind of on alert for, am I going to say something stupid? These people all read a lot. <laughs> they come to Strand. They, you know, um, I don't know them. New York is quite secular humanist place. Mm. And, one of them asked me this question about psychoanalysis. How does psychoanalysis come into my work and my understanding? Because, I mean, it's very important to me yeah. in a lot of ways, but limited, but important. And I said, well, you know, I mean, I think there's this whole thing about wanting and needing, and psychoanalysts call that the lack. But, you know, and I don't even know why it came out of my mouth, except maybe I was trying to stir things up. But I said, but, you know, I, I, I know that that's actually just Christ. And <laughs> my boyfriend said, you know, everybody had been nodding along with all the intellectual things I had been saying up to that point. And then everybody was kind of like, just well, sort of froze yeah. when I said that. Yeah. And then I got a little scared and I was like, oh, gosh, like, now did I say this, like, in a way that sounded like bad are they are they dismissing me are they thinking you know like all those silly thoughts in my head so then i went out to dinner afterward and i was with my publisher and my friend will who is runs this podcast called chapo trap house which is a socialist democratic socialist podcast um my friend chris who's a musician Rachel True, who has been on the show, but the, none of them are Christian, basically, and most of them are atheists. Is just to say, mm. and I'm sitting there, and Rachel's like, "So you said Christ, you know? Um, like, what if I'm Jewish? What if I'm this? What if I'm that?" And I was like, Ugh. "Like," and I was so tired because I'd been touring, <laughs> like city to city. It was like, you know, twelve cities in fourteen days or something like wow. that. And I'm just like, my energy bars on my video game are like, I'm just like fading. And I'm trying to answer this question. But I bring all this up. One, we should, I think, approach that actual question. Mm. But to say about the lack being filled with the presence of Christ, rather than there being a nothingness Mm. that we have to build a bridge over to meet the other, to say that there's a fullness that is mediated or it is is a a fullness of the presence that we enter into um, together in a way or that we, it doesn't even matter if the other person enters into it or not once you decide to enter into it something happens in your relationship to the other because we're all in that fullness that appears to be a nothingness to us now i realize this is going <laughs> look down the field but let's it's great yeah well there's a mystery there because in reality there is in the deep reality there is not the nothingness right it's christ is with us right but in the in the in the 
structure and anatomy of of individual human consciousness. We've been led into what Rudolf Steiner calls the spectator consciousness, which he describes as the as the height of actually the consequences of the fall, where I can have a sense that that I'm separate and that whatever is other than me is not really real. Even though in the deep reality, that's not the full truth. But I can have the experience that I'm alone, for example, that I'm deeply alone. And that's important for my experience of freedom as a, as a, as a place, as a stage. It's also important that Christ doesn't demand his presence to be felt. He knocks at the door. And so this, this double reality, I think, is true, that we can at one time go through experiences of feeling totally alone so that we can get a sense for our own being as being separate. But we're given the opportunity, and it, it, it does have the element of freedom to come into communion or come into a sense of, like, for example, right now, I can dismiss you. I could not be in an interested devotional mode right now. And that would really affect our conversation and our sense of communion with each other. So it's, and yet I can also orientate myself in a different way to open my heart up to those realities. I mean, just try to dismiss me. (laughs) Impossible. (laughs) Impossible. Okay. So let's go to these four figures. Now, this is before the hallucinogenic and theogenic. Well, you mean my vision quest? Which is, I was assuming was, but maybe not. It it was. It, it, I mean, I had definitely had experiences, but it, I didn't take any hallucinogens. Oh, you didn't. Okay. In that, in the Lakota tradition. Okay. Um, but yeah, these four figures, these these teachers, Dennis, Garrig, Orland, they basically just introduced me to the anthroposophical path, okay. and I started reading How to Know Higher Worlds by Rudolf Steiner. And really trying to do those meditative practices, focusing on what what he calls the Rose Cross meditation. Mm -hmm. And that just kind of, that was my next step from Zen meditations, basically. Can you describe that meditation just quickly? In a nutshell, I mean, the Rose Cross works with an imagination, a, a black cross with red roses, seven red roses, that have thoughts connected to them. So the seven red roses are the transformation of all the passions. Mm. The black cross is everything that must die or fall away in your soul that is not helpful, so to speak. And you're, tr- you're trying to feel that dynamic tension, feel the thoughts in the image, Mm-hmm. Feel the thoughts in the image. And gradually, that 
feeling, cognitive feeling of the thoughts in the image as you practice. I mean, it's not easy, right? To even imagine these things and holding your consciousness is really a workout. But gradually, those cognitive feelings, the feeling of the thoughts in the images start to shape your soul and give you um, like windows into experiences. Mm -hmm. So were you doing like no mind meditation before that, essentially? Yeah, that's one part of it. Mm -hmm. So moving, because I am going to guess that a lot more people who listen to the show or any show (laughs) know more about no mind meditation. In fact, they might think that that's what meditation is. That's right. Yeah. Um, then this much more image based, almost contem- contemplative, but not quite yeah. meditation. Yeah. So when you moved from a meditation, which was saying have no contents here yeah. into one that says, let's f- be rich with, feeling and images and image but not just any feeling it has to, you this weird thing that he said you have to feel this thought yeah like what is that that's a right. whole thing <laughs> right which i think some of the other exercises can actually help you do first so it's interesting that's also right. you're starting yeah. really with there but when you move from one to the other was it jarring and were you actually even surprised that someone should say think of this that you know totally. imagine this thing it was it was very weird yeah. Because like you said, I was just focusing on my breath and then focusing on just no mind and just presence and emptiness and anything that any images that arose in my consciousness, I was schooled to just let go of. But now, no, no, no. You're going to sh- form an image and you're going to really focus on it with a thought, try to feel it. It was very jarring. Yeah. Very new. Mm. Very different. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about the different kinds of meditation I, I've done. Mm. And it's interesting to me when I present people with anthroposophical or Christian esotericist mm-hmm. meditations mm-hmm. that they don't, that they're so varied in form. And I think that that's, that's, shocking to people that for instance one of the simplest meditations that I did for a long time was just noticing the rising and falling of thought but not trying to get rid of just noticing and I I, there's a version of it um, described by Franz Barden who's a esotericist occultist that has a lot in common with anthroposophy but you know, sort of not intersecting really. Um, and the idea just being, okay, we got this thought space, this thought realm, this inner realm, and it's going all the time. So don't you want to kind of check in on the flip book? Don't you want to kind of check in on what's running through constantly? Um, and as soon as you start doing that, I, I find it a little funny that people, when they approach meditation, most often will say, get rid of that, rather than, before I even really look at it, get rid of it. 
That's so strange to me. And I'm not, that's not a condemnation of the Zen tradition or, or Eastern traditions, but it's just that the prominence of that is yeah. interesting to me. Yeah. Prob- probably because the thought that you, that thinking and thoughts lead you away from God or the source or peace, any kind of sense of, thoughtness <laughs> is usually determined a disturber of the peace. Uh-huh. And that that's probably where that ethic comes from. But of course, as you know, the anthroposophical path is very different. Yeah. I mean, that is really interesting, isn't it? I think that thoughts that the bearable accumulation of the objects of thought mm. the thought objects i think it it speaks more to how we experience and encounter thoughts than anything about thoughts themselves that object thinking is so present that our thoughts become so heavy and that we identify so intensely with them yeah. and that also the way that they interact with feeling that's it is so overwhelming that now it's like, well, if I get rid of them, I can have some rest. That's right. And, and the, the experience, like you said, of even that they're not connected to feeling that if I'm thinking my soul life, my feeling life is dry. Mm. That's also a very common experience. Uh Yeah. Like it's just this head space that I'm in and I, I get tired and I'm not feeling my heart. Right. So let's let's not do that. Let's talk about then moving forward from the meditation that you've been given. Mm. And again, just for listeners, just to say, I'm doing this again to show how all these threads come in to give a picture of a relationship to Christianity, to mm. Christ, mm. to the Bible, mm-hmm. to being a priest, mm. to all of this. Because I think that the view of how that happens is so limited because the experience is often very, you know, limited and narrow very for a lot of people. Very yeah. true. Very true. Yeah. But not usually in the Christian community, although who knows? You know. It can be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, so essentially what that meditation and, and other exercises led me to was and I can see that now, was really getting familiar <clears throat> with what I would call the, the experience of death and resurrection. So the, the cross as a, a kind of primer for the soul of learning to feel what, what that letting go and dying to something is like. And the roses being expressions of the mystery of transformation and new life and a new self experience. And this, 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 so in a nutshell, the Rose cross meditation is really a window, a kind of archetypal window into the reality of who Christ is uh, behind those thoughts and images. But I mean, to your, to your track there, I would say, all of these things were preparing me, leading me, helping me to 
to find my task, if you will, that happens to be as a Christian priest. The 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 me, the um, vision quest as well. The- so it's interesting because there's two there's two parts there because one is the relationship to Christ, and the other is deciding to be a priest. Or the that's true. I'm I'm not a priest. You're not a priest, right? So you may be priestly <laughs> in some aspects of your life. Maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, but you have a relation, right? You have a relationship, so they're not identical right. by no means. So, so for me, kind of how that went down was, um, I had been working with these meditations, and one morning, early one morning, I had a, a profound experience, and that was that I came face to face with myself. It was like as if the cross had had transformed and become me and I encountered me as this beast. Yeah. And and Rudolf Steiner actually describes that in, in his How to Know Higher Bo- How to Know Higher Worlds as a as a as a, a possible experience. But I didn't realize it was that in the moment. I came into an encounter with myself as a kind of beastly self, uh, kind of dripping with immorality. Just my, if you put it this way, my karmic double. And it was very disturbing. It was like um, an imagination, a picture that felt as real as you're sitting here, that I encountered myself in all my untransformedness and it said you are responsible for me but it's me (laughs) and for two days I was kind of dazed and confused overwhelmed with the feeling of I don't know how to carry this meet this work with this this revelation of of my, uh, the darkness of my own being. If you put it in Jung language, it would be the shadow. Or, um, and so I went to Dennis Kloshek, who was one of these mentors, and he was able to kind of orientate me to, oh, that's what Rudolf Steiner calls the guardian, the lower guardian of the threshold, and that's yourself. And so that was somewhat helpful. But then the next day, I had this. I don't know where it came from, impulse to go to the consecration, the mass, the Eucharist service in the Christian community. And I was confirmed in the Christian community. That was seven years previous to that because I was 23. And I had said after my confirmation, I'm never going to church again. I was, I had no interest in church at all. In fact, all of the parts of anthroposophy that said Christ, I just basically threw out. <laughs> I wasn't interested. Yeah. But this impulse arose in me. Go to the mass. And so I went. And in the communion, when the priest comes and touches your face with the peace, <laughs> I felt this being through the priest. This this presence, this loving, peace-filled presence that I immediately felt as medicine and strength for working with 
the shadow being that I had encountered as myself. I felt even more than that, I felt in the communion moment, I felt I had never felt so me. <laughs> I had never felt so myself in that moment. It was as if this being was giving me my humanity. And so the experience of being strengthened to deal with this darkness in me as, as a kind of medicine and that I felt more me in the presence and relationship with this being that I now, I'll just, I call Christ. I was hooked. I, I went every Sunday since then. And yet I didn't in that moment say, now I want to be a priest. Not at all. But I was, I was a Christian. I, had, I, I could then say to myself, I am a Christian. <laughs> and it was a radical, weird experience. So just, there's a lot. Yeah there but just for people who are unfamiliar let me just say and you can correct me yeah. look basically if you go to a service at christian community you, you sit down and they it's kind of there's a part that at least on the outside looks the same every week mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and it even looks a bit like mass if you're catholic yeah Yeah. it's very similar it feels very very different um i will say for me it feels Mm. very different the feeling um and then there's do you call it a homily like Mm -hmm. yeah there's a sermon homily sermon yeah and uh it's it's much more in my experience again it's much more uh connected to our lives our day-to-day lives than just sort of l- <laughs> lingering in a, a verse you know that lingering in something in the bible although we'll bring that in of course and then um yeah i mean it it, it sounds just very plain mm. <laughs> you know in, in terms of you're not holding up serpents or anything like that. Yeah. You know? Um, <laughs> but it's, but it definitely has a different kind of presence. So I can see that moment. The peace be with you. Mm. The peace, which is also interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and I can see that moment having this kind of fullness. Mm. But I want to also be clear about something. It's not a born again moment mm. it, in a way. It could, I mean, maybe you would call it that, but it's not in the in the sort of evangelical understanding of the revelation came to me and here I am and everything has begun again and I'm cleansed of everything. It's it's no. not like that. It's because I, I just want people to know that actually there was a different kind of I can't speak for all of evangelicals, of course, but there's a different kind of thing happening within and without in that moment for you that isn't 
just a one it's not metaphorical two it's not uh mm. it's not only a cleansing away of past sins so you can get a reset no if, if anything it's a it's a driving you deeper into an encounter with your sins and your karma well that's a big <laughs> you know? difference yeah in general yeah, I want to stick on that for a second because that's a big difference. the The experience was not that I will, I am no longer a sinner, or that I'm cleansed of all sins at all. In fact, it's more awareness of this dark one in me. Mm. But the experience is there's 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 another one that is helping me bear that one, and work to transform that one, which is radically different than most born again confessions what's similar is that it's an encounter it's an experience and it did change my life i was not the same but it's not like therefore i'm totally cleansed not at all Um, but in that moment i awoke to a relationship that i wanted and that i didn't have consciously before but i knew it had he was always with me i just didn't know i just it wasn't aware that's another signature of the experience the feeling is this being has always been close to my heart i just wasn't aware so uh, what why i say that is because there are similarities i can have discussions with born again christians and be able to connect with them but it's also distinct in that mostly born-again Christians have the orientation that once I've confessed Jesus, I'm cleansed. I don't have any more sin. That's not my experience. Yeah. So that's will bring me back to the New York story. Yeah. Which is when you say that I, I was able to see that he was there always, right? Mm-hmm. That's very different than, do you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Mm. No, I'm not saying that there's no crossover there, but it's a uh, the the recognition is already in place in the Christian community and in Anthroposophy that this Christ deed has happened for all of us and continues to echo and evolve as time goes on for and with us and that it doesn't matter. <laughs> it, 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 That's right. I don't want to say it doesn't matter. That's I'm, I'm hesitating around that, yeah. but it doesn't matter who or where or what you are, what you identify with. It's like saying a volcano went off. I mean, you can't say right. that the volcano didn't go off it's something that's happened to the earth itself, which is why I say, and the cosmos and the human being, is why I say it's like a cosmic law or a law of nature, which when I said that at the table, my publisher was like, oh, you need to write a book. Christ is the law of, of, law of nature. I would publish that. And I was like, okay, well, <laughs> we'll see. I don't know if I can write that one. But that is that idea that it's something that has occurred and is a being a being who has occurred to us. That's right. Yeah. And that's a real difference. Yeah. In in many 
expressions of fundamentalist or born again Christianity that the the idea is once I confess that exceptional confession, Jesus Christ my Lord and Savior, then I have a relationship with him. The esoteric Christian perspective is Christ is with all humans, period. Walking in spirit with them, no matter what you are, who you are on the face of the earth. And you can become conscious of that being, which then becomes your own confession. So it's not either or. Very often in fundamentalist circles, it's either or. If you confess him, you have a relationship. Esoteric Christianity says you, everyone has a relationship, period, because he's with you. And you can become aware of that relationship. And to add to that, I would say, I mean, that's a great articulation. And I would yeah. also just say that when you confess him, you might actually not be confessing him. Just because you say it, that... that when we talk about intention, (laughs) a lot of times we do things, it's, it's actually quite hard to be free and intentional. And so a lot of times when we think we are acting out of, out of a purposefulness that it's an automatic reaction. It's bitten by others, by circumstance, by karma, by compulsion, and that it takes a lot to, declare or affirm freely an association or affiliation with this being. And that's not to say that you shouldn't do it. I'm not saying don't fake it till you make it. Cause actually sometimes <laughs> oh, for sure. a rhythm is actually how you do it. Oh yeah. You just keep Fake faking it till you, it make- t- till you make yeah. it. You know, sometimes you just have to do all the exoteric stuff and then suddenly it's real one day. That is true. But it's just to acknowledge that freedom isn't always signified by the material act or behavior of something that looks free. Agreed. And I think there's a point there that you made that I want to emphasize, which is also, and this is in the Gospel of John, where Christ says, you say, Lord, Lord, but I don't know you. It doesn't mean just because I say Christ that that's the being that I'm connecting to. There's also a being that is the being of light, Lucifer, that can very easily appear like Christ. And so that this this gets into the details of you know the fine discernments, but this is this is real. It's it, especially in esoteric Christianity, it becomes, and I would just say. In real Christianity, it becomes necessary to begin to discern between the being of light and Christ's being. And and also understand, too, that that being of light can take you there. He can't take you the whole way, but he's instrumental, actually, which is part of why he's in the Bible to begin with. That's right. right. Yeah. But when we're saying... If you say the words or say the name of Christ or mm. whatever, mm. one of the interesting things to me is those words 
themselves, the name itself has a power that mm. seems independent of the belief. Mm. Like, I know people who, <clears throat> you know, when they're in some sort of spiritual trouble, or say if they have sleep paralysis and they encounter that figure, yeah. they'll say the name of Christ and it'll work. And it doesn't matter if they have that belief or not. And so, in some ways, I think that's just an affirmation of the always with us-ness of Christ. But also, there seems to be something else going on there, that the the name has a strength of its own. I think it's right. And I think it, I think you're pointing to a kind of double reality that there is a power in Jesus, the word. There is a power in Christ, the word. Um, and at the same time, I can say, okay, Christ is the being, the power a powerful, almighty being controlling all things, standing at the side of the road like a policeman with an with a, a speed gun, ready to catch you out with anything you do and condemn you to hell. <laughs> I can call that Christ, which is actually a specter of the Father God, not even the Father God. So I can I can burden the name. And you could say, use the name and confound it with the description and the phenomena and the idea of a being that's not Christ. And it gets, uh, the name gets laden with shadows. Let me put it that way. And the name still has power. Very often, what we imagine as God is actually referring to a different kind of being or a specter being, but we use the same label. So the label gets messy. Nevertheless, there's still power in the name of Jesus. Well, and those beings are aspects of God. So it's not, mm. it's not as if it's not true, mm. but it's what's the, everything is, permissible mm. all things are permissible not all things are profitable or whatever it is it's like <laughs> well i can maybe that's just not the best pathway to this being but that's a you know there's that book that very popular book eat pray love where the woman uh, elizabeth gilbert she goes and she meets with this shaman and he says something i'm gonna mess it up but he says something like well you know there are two ways to go to god you can go up 17 levels or you can go down 17 levels you still end up with god but it's probably better to go up you know <laughs> like <laughs> so it's not it's not as if you can't get there but yeah mm. i mean it takes a lot of endurance i mean i can speak for that about that with the sexual sphere like mm. how many things you get knocked around with when you're exploring this unilluminated and yeah. i don't mean that in a negative way but literally just a dark you know, sphere and passageway, yeah. you just get battered around so much because most people haven't cut the path. So you're the one putting the torches and the sconces and that's very hard work to do. And I think that, so some of these other beings, yes, actually someone does need to come along and meet them with the love that redeems them. But 
Which is different than going to them for help. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. But but really trying to understand who they are, what you're doing, and yeah. actually bring them into being something that can really assist others on the path. Yeah. But that's hard work. That's yeah. very hard work. And sometimes it's better to <laughs> get get pretty far down the path before you start doing this bodhisattva thing of trying to save the that's other spirits. Right. <laughs> that's right. The, I mean... My experience is more like Patrick and I, Patrick Kennedy and I say this a lot on our podcast, right impulse, wrong address. Uh, So the impulse to go to God is right. Uh, The deepest, the deepest impulse that is behind sex, of course, is right. It's just, it's maybe not going to be fulfilled in the way that you're picturing it or that with the being that you're going to the God that stands at the side of the road, ready to condemn you with, are you following the rules or not is you could say the wrong address of Christ, but the impulse to go to God is right. So it becomes a, a question of then, that's another that's a you could call that an esoteric Christian understanding of sin, or I would just say a Christian understanding of sin, which is hamartia missing the mark you've got the impulse is good, usually the intention is good, but the way I try to fill that need often is missing right the helpful the helpful place. Which just doesn't go far enough as is mm. a way like that's what somebody say about fundamentalists like they're not literal enough they're not extreme enough like almost it's <laughs> they're not they're not, not they're really stopping short and you know because I'm thinking about you know a kind of an, angry anti theism mm. atheism mm. is like the impulse to reject the condemnation of God and the simplistic ideas of God and all that. That's great. I think that's, that's actually, you can move into the mystery, but you've got to, you've got to keep developing after that point. If you just linger there, then you've frozen your own development. And, you know, I mean, look, and that's, that's not even to say, I mean, there are lots of, uh, there are plenty of atheists who are, deeper in the mysteries and more kind in spirit than you know plenty of plenty of people who are seeking even on esoteric paths so amen it's not about that no. but it's about how far do you want to take this <laughs> and i my my response is always you know all the way <laughs> whatever that means yeah. um for me yeah. for me all the way you know i have an interesting story about that um my father-in-law is an atheist. He's actually over in Herne Bay in England. And every time we visit, we always have one deep conversation. It's usually at 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> He's usually had a few glasses of wine. And I would say this now. I, I, there are in many ways, the morality that lives in my atheist father-in-law is deeper than mine as a priest, Christian priest. He has a concern for humanity that is very powerful. And at one point we talked about the meaning of life. And he, long story short, we came to the 
to the agreed shared understanding that life is about receiving difficult wounds in your childhood, working with those to try through those wounds to try to find meaning in life. And he was, he was right with me. I just didn't use any labels of God or Christ or anything, but he was right with me in the kind of, I'll put it this way now, but I didn't then, death and resurrection process of working with your wound to find deeper meaning. And his experience was very much in relationship to his daughter, my wife. But he could affirm, at the end of that conversation, he could affirm, life is about transforming wounds into deep meaning. And he's an atheist. Now, from my perception, I would say that that is Christ in him. Just not labeled for him Christ. But that that impulse to transform wounds into healing powers, so to speak, deeply meaningful sources of, of truth, that's, that's the essence of death and resurrection in a biography. So I have, in that moment when he said that, I, I, I saw Christ in him, even though he's an atheist. Yeah. So this is, I'm glad you brought that up because this is, again, sort of tricky territory um, with lots of slips and tangles because I always try to give the people that are listening or that I'm talking to a way in that doesn't require any kind of adoption of my experiences, I don't even like saying my beliefs, but my experiences and encounters. Um, But I also am struggling with that lately. Hmm. Now, increasingly, that's starting to feel a little bit like a betrayal or a dishonesty. Hmm. Because what I am strongly (laughs) experiencing is that those exit doors are making it harder to get us to be where we should be going. Mm. (laughs) That they're actually starting to block Mm. spiritual experience. And those exit doors can come in many places. I think you know, easy to go to examples. Two that I've talked about on the show again and again are magic and psychedelics and AI and you know now there's certain forms of continental philosophy, all that sort of stuff, psychoanalysis, whatever. To me, it's like, well, we can talk about all that as much as we want, but until we start bringing in the elemental kingdom, until we start bringing in, um the presence of spiritual beings, including Christ, I'm not actually, I'm, I, I'm a little afraid that I'm not doing what I'm meant to be doing. Mm. And it's becoming quite confusing because I also, the last thing I want is to impose what I'm saying on others and to also make them feel alienated and isolated 
from uh, f- from a sense of warmth or compassion. And also, you know, I mean, <laughs> I could be wrong. I mean, that's that's the sort of pop way of saying it. Well, what if I'm wrong? What if I, you know, I had to have some uncertainty. That's all true. Sure. However, that doesn't actually affect my honesty. Like, that might affect, my reality picture might be wrong, but I still have to be able to honestly report it. Um, and, you know, and the confirmation and affirmation of this as being correct is coming from many different mm-hmm. <laughs> directions and other mm-hmm. people and all mm-hmm. that. I'm not alone. I'm not trying to be a guru. So, I'm working with that. So when I hear you talk about this conversation, I hear you and what you're saying. And I also Mm. experienced that that would be true if I talked to someone that Mm. had that. And yet I would feel now, what do I, now what do I do? Mm. And that's one person, that's one conversation and face to face with one person. It's easy. But then when you start dealing with groups of people, a signal or a message that's going out into the world through a podcast, a, a talk, a book, whatever, it starts becoming a bit trickier and more difficult to navigate. I can, yeah, I think you're right. It also depends so much on what you're hoping for. Like what, like if my expectation in my conversation with my father-in-law was to get him to confess Christ or get him, get him to believe in something or that wouldn't have worked but i was content just to recognize the footprints of this being who i love in him Mm. and that's it and imagine in as he after he dies is experiencing his life in retrospect and the and he's experiencing what others experience in him in Kamaloka, okay, I know I'm I'm introducing a whole new, but imagine when he comes to me and he experiences in himself this Christ being who I love. That's the kind of picture I'm holding. So those are the kinds of expectations and hopes. I'm just content, though, to see the Christ in you, Connor, and know the Christ in in my father-in-law know the Christ. That's my, um, that's my hope. Yeah. I mean, I suppose you're just positioned differently though. Cause you're yeah. a priest. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I could be a different kind of priest. Well, that's but, true. That's yeah. true. But I mean, just to say like, people know what they're getting in a way, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, he's a priest and he, yeah. I think for me, not only am I not a priest, but I also, I'm not working in the religious realm. No. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a different set here to say, (laughs) let's work on this social organism. Let's work on these social issues together. Mm -hmm. By the way, um, fairies are real, you know? (laughs) And so we got to consider them when we're thinking about how to build society. It's like, that's, that's a, that's a tricky, that's tricky ground to navigate. And so I'm just, Anyway, I don't need you to solve that problem no, for me. I need you no. to wrestle with it. But there's the Rudolf Steiner moment where yeah. he has, you know, been around all these different kinds of people and is teaching mm. at, you know, the mm. socialist worker school and is going to these parties where 
you know, there are Marxists and capitalists and Catholics and, you know, everybody together. It's like this. And he is just seeing these conversations and thinking, wow, they all could cancel each other out if Mm. they wanted to, they all have strong viewpoints. And he's also going through all this like spiritual stuff. And he comes to this question in his life where he says, you know, shall I speak? Will I tell people about this spiritual stuff that's going on in me? Now for me, I've already, (laughs) <laughs> I've already jumped the shark with that. People you decided know. that already. Yeah. Yes, but how to speak? Yes, in these is a is a new question, and how to be helpful. That's right. Right. It can be way too much for a person. Certain pictures and ideas. So it's 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 also the art of conversation, mm-hmm. which I feel you you have gifts in. I'm trying. Yeah. yeah. So esoteric Christianity. Yeah. Like obviously everybody we've already given pictures of you know that are different than mm. sort of the standard idea of what Christianity is and how it works mm. for people. But what what is meant by this and why? Because I think it, it for me the distinction is so radically important. I mean, I ha- in some ways I have to choose esoteric Christianity because it doesn't. The other Christianities aren't going to be down with various things I've done in my life and who I am and all that kind of stuff. They're not a lot of room, you know. Um, there's a, I could go to Universalist Church or something like that, but there's just not going to be a lot of room. Right. But that's not really. So weird. in general, it's more liberal and open, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> well, you hope. <laughs> not always. But. Unfortunately, like the intellectualism yeah. gives people ways to be shitty in completely new forms, like, you know, saying, well, trans people, they should just, you know, they'll, they'll be the other gender in the next lifetime. So just mm. let them go through this one. And mm. I mean, that's that kind of like kooky mm. anti freedom stances. But I. Okay, anyway, mm-hmm. all that aside, mm. this is a, obviously like a subtweet to some mm-hmm. <laughs> someone whose article I read in some anthroposophical publication or something. But, um, but so there's that, but there's also, um, in some ways, the necessity of, if I'm really going to be Christian, actually, I need to go through this reality picture. I need to understand a lot more that won't allow me to be in a church that's, say, doing lots of good community work and having Mm. potlucks and all that kind of stuff, Mm. but it's become this exoteric Mm -hmm. uh, club. Yeah. 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 it's it's interesting. I mean, there's I, I I could go in so many different directions with this, but in a way, the more the more the club or the group or the community moves away from the relationship with Christ Jesus, either at the altar or in other people, or as an experience, the more one moves into something that would be called exoteric Christianity. The more you're into doing things just for tradition or for the fear of punishment, that would be exoteric Christianity. 
But in reality, I would also say Christianity is esoteric. And what do I mean by that? <laughs> I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that the church, as those human beings that are in a super sensible way connected to Christ, like a golden thread weaving through human hearts, is esoteric. It's hidden from the normal senses. The way Jesus Christ is appearing right now, walking with humans, no matter who you are, is hidden to the normal eye. It's, i.e., esoteric. Esoteric means hidden. So there are the fundamental aspects, and this Paul experience, Paul of Damascus experienced Saul becoming Paul, that was an esoteric experience. He didn't read the Bible to be convinced. He had a experience, a super sensible experience of something that not everyone could see, that you could say downloaded into his soul the whole secrets of what he then was able to write in all of his letters that became the corpus of Christian theology. So uh, the church, Christ himself, um, the fruit of the spirit, love, faith, hope, these are all esoteric realities that are with us now. This is the other distinction. Here with us now, the kingdom of God is at hand, but it's hidden from the normal senses. You have to have new eyes, new ears, new heart to consciously relate to them. Yeah, so, yeah, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, first I would say... Mm. No offense, no, no, to you, but the, you know, the Bible is in a lot of ways not the best book for explaining what Christianity is, <laughs> which is which is hilarious. And people gotta, I think that the if people wake to that, mm-hmm. it solves some problems. That's it's right. not. It it can be, it can be once you go through certain things in your life. Um, and for some people it just is right away, but mm-hmm. you have to go through a lot to even be able to understand. I- I'm not there, but to understand the Bible. Absolutely. And part of that is because the Bible exists. So when you're talking about the people who lived in the time of, of Jesus, Jesus's, maybe we'll mm-hmm, get into that, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, in Christ, mm-hmm. that they um, they were having these experiences without the Bible, obviously. So then the Bible exists, and people lean into the Bible as the explainer, and you have to take it in, you have to imbibe it, because it's how we know, especially in an intellectual way, yeah. to even access these mysteries. But we're also being asked to have the super sensible experiences of those people. 100%. With the Bible as present in our lives, which they did not have. They did not have that. So we have this added thing that is both a path and an obstruction. Yes. And well said. That's where we are. We're, yeah. we, we, our obstruction is our path. 
Right. And, and very often in kind of exoteric traditional Christianity, you have Christianity is the Bible. Right. When, right. if you look at the original Christianity, it, the Bible wasn't even around. Maybe you had one scroll in your community, maybe. Mm. But your life was a ritual, a communion ritual. Your experience was experiencing the risen Christ with new eyes, new ears, new heart in the midst of you all in the ritual or as an individual. You didn't even have a relationship to the book because only the priests had the book, mm-hmm. even if there was a book. So, so now, if we don't, if we get out of this where, where the Bible is an obstruction, like you so well said, when it's rightly worked with, we learn to read the Bible gradually. And then it can become a window through which we can know the esoteric reality. Right. Otherwise, it's just a, a, an, an idol. Right. And that's why I was saying before the fundamentalists, they're not, the problem with them is that they're not literal enough mm. because they can't be literate enough with what they've read. Mm. So they they can't. Maybe there's an aspect of devotion there that is actually worth investigating and worth mm. moving with, but but the but they they don't know what they're reading often. Know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's so, often materialistic too. There's another. That's what I like mean. A lens. Yeah. That's just materialistically based. Right. That isn't so helpful. And just to just to be clear about this for people listening by materialistic mm. i don't think jonah means um and we need to see the metaphor there mm. now of course we do need to see that there is the metaphorical level Layer. yeah but you're not saying leave the materialistic version behind just to find the metaphor you're saying actually That's there's right. a bunch of levels that can be transparent yeah. um that should become transparent to each other Mm. Um, okay. So, <laughs> so that's, that's part of the esoteric Christian yeah. path. I think, you know, when we were taking a walk earlier today, there mm. was the idea of, that you brought up of the presence of Christ as a being in your life and the encounter with that being mm. and the dedication to cultivating deepening that relationship all that that's part of it too and Mm. Mm. like i get the sense Mm. that so many people who are like "Mm, here's a good example i was Mm. at a i was at a a vegetarian place that's like up the street from here Mm. um just getting some food and there's this woman that goes there all the time her name is mary and she's old Mm. Uh, she is old, so <laughs> she's, she's. I was gonna say relatively, but no, it's like she must be in her eighties or something like that. And you know, she's asked me like, "Well, do, you know, do you believe in God or do you believe, or do, is Jesus Christ your best friend?" She said it was the first thing she ever said mm-hmm. to me, and I said, "Yeah." Mm. And but then, of course, what she meant was 
actually by asking that question is, do you go to this one Catholic mass? Oh, you know, because yeah. she had the church she needed me to go to, the mass that I needed to go to. And I just kind of took it in stride, and I thought, she's sweet, and maybe she was disarmed by me saying yes. <laughs> um, and a lot of people who say yes to that mean it in, uh, in the sense that they have an exuberance of feeling, but there's not, there's which is great, but there's not much past the exuberance of feeling um, when they say, Christ is my best friend and, mm. you know, do their mm. tooth and nail record label songs about Jesus and, mm. you know, all this Jesus rock concerts and stuff. But then I was walking down the street with my boyfriend a few months mm. later and we were holding hands and she saw us and she just oh, yeah. spitting on the ground. Yeah. Sick, 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 she said to us. Mm. And... <laughs> You know, my boyfriend didn't know that I had talked with her before, and mm. she probably didn't know that I had talked with her before either. She probably mm. forgot. Mm. But he was just, like, ready to, you know, just, like, yell at her. He's like, just start making out with me in front of her or something like that. Cause <laughs> I, I, I understand that response. But I just thought, wow, she really yeah, she really was seeking my help when mm. she asked me mm. if Jesus Christ was my friend. Mm. You know, my best friend. She didn't have the prescription she actually was looking for someone to to help her in that moment and maybe i didn't do the best job but i think the ways in which a lot of christian people live is actually them in search of esoteric christianity absolutely again this to me is like the right impulse wrong address um, and and so much of it also has to do with how we imagine that God deals with things like sin and pain and darkness. Mm. And again, we come back to the picture of God as the as the policeman with the with the radar gun on the side of the road, ready to condemn you if you're doing something bad. That's not the Christ that I experienced at the altar. That's not his characteristic. That's not how he works with sin. In my experience, he knew that dark being, that shadow being that I experienced in my meditation better than I knew that being. And he didn't condemn me for it. He leaned in. And he also didn't say, oh, it's okay. You're okay just the way you are. He related to my sin like John 8, where the woman caught in adultery, he says, go, walk more, and sin no more. So, in other words, I don't condemn you, but I'm going to encourage you to work again. Uh look again, try again. So so very often in fundamentalist circles, we have the condemnation relationship. We imagine God sees sin and condemns you. That's because we've taken the end times and projected them to now. But that's a whole other story. But I think you're totally right that actually every heart wants the esoteric connection to the to the one who knows our sinful nature fully 
and that that doesn't bar our way and relationship with Christ by no means. He's actually interested in walking with us in our sinfulness so that we can, or let me put it this way, in our untransformedness and inspiring us to transform more and more into the image and likeness of his being. As opposed to just saying, you're condemned. Right. I mean, I would say that's an esoteric relationship to sin, so to speak, as opposed to a more exoteric where it's just condemnation. Mm. So there are two directions I want to go in here before the end. And the Mm. reason why there are two, and we're going to have to pick one path because we don't have enough. Okay. Okay. Because I, I would spend all day talking with you, Jonah, but for people who are listening, it's just because i got to get them to a train. To go to Cork. To go to Cork. Um, <laughs> so, either we can do hell, mm. or we can do the two Jesus children. Mm. And the reason why I would go for the two Jesus children is to show people some of the... Uh, mystery aspects of this mm. Christianity we're talking about. Mm. But maybe it's enough just for me to say to Jesus children. Mm. And, then, and then people will be like, what? what? And maybe look into it. Or we can talk about hell because to follow along this condemnation piece, does it actually fit in anywhere mm. in, exo- mm. in esoteric Christianity? Mm. Um, where does that go? And, and all that. So choose your own adventure. <laughs> well, maybe I can just say something brief about both. I would I would tar- start with hell. I mean, the unfortunate thing is that the pictures of hell that are revealed in the Gospels, and particularly in the Book of Revelation, they're actually, if you closely read, they're actually they have to do with the end of Earth evolution, the end of our earthly path, so to speak. And they're not meant to be at the end of one life. So the reasons that, that, that those pictures have been moved to the end of one life is a whole discussion. But, but there is a picture. That there are three hells in esoteric Christianity. One is when you die, you go through a process of purification that feels painful because you have to let go of all your earthly desires. But it's a purification process that then leads you to another incarnation. That's one kind of hell. Another kind of hell is right here on earth. It's everything that separates me from the being of love. It's everything that separates me from consciousness of the being who gives me my humanity. Being unconscious of his being is a kind of hell, even if I don't know that it is, because I'm, I'm not consciously and aware of the blessing of the d- dynamic of love. And then there's the third hell, which is the the hell that comes at the very end, and that has to do with a picture of the separation of the goats from the sheep, for example, at the end of earth evolution, where it's not so much that Christ judges us and says, you're over there and you're over there, but it's more 
do we choose to love him? And if we do, if we feed, clothe, bring uh, help when he's sick in others, we are uniting ourselves with his being and inclining ourselves. We're choosing the being of love, which is the true human being. So at the end, you, you could say, what you love more is where you're led. And actually, Augustine said this, so there's an overlap. What you love more, do you love yourself, your egotistical self, materialism, selfishness? There's a strong part of my being that loves that more than God, more than what is truly human, more than God in you. And so at the end of Earth Evolution, if I, if I love that more, I will go the path of materialism, which is shown in the picture of Babylon, which is thrown into the pit. And that is, that is a real picture. But that's only at the very end of this big Earth development. Yeah. And even that, I would say, we have questions about mm. yeah. where those beings take you, where you go, what yeah. might happen to you. Yeah what continued existence is possible there all the all those questions which are all great but yeah. nothing is the other th picture is nothing can be outside of the father that's yeah nothing that's falls outside of the father that's it's cosmic dust you don't become fully human okay but you're not right nothing is outside of the father in the esoteric christianity yeah right uh, and the human being is no matter what the human being is well, maybe after that end time, we can talk about yeah. that. But no matter what, the human being continues to exist. So how do we want our our incarnation shuffled around? What do we mm. want it to look like? There's a lot, there's a lot there. Mm. Why did I say that? I was just thinking about that in terms of people's fear of impending emergency, which is mm. something that I mm. talked about with Patrick when he was on the show, mm. that these crises that we face are, if we focus on them too much, it's because they're the easy way out. <laughs> mm. <laughs> that, that, it's, that it's not as simple as any of these horrible looming crises, that actually we have something that's going to keep going on and on and on and on that is a much greater responsibility even than that, which I realize can sound glib if, I, if, if I'm... Say it too here. quickly kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but... Okay. So that's a so, little, maybe a little way to so, say something about hell. But Yeah. So then two Jesus boys, and then, yeah. uh, and and then we'll <laughs> call it a day. And then we'll end. Yeah. <laughs> we can leave people with that mystery because yeah. I, I, I say it not to present some kind of teaser conspiracy or something like that, but rather to show the multi, mm. the, the multi presence um, of, of beings that have sort of come together to, mm. to give a path to esoteric Christianity. There's a, there's a line where it's so beautiful mm. from uh, the childhood of Jesus by, by Emil Bach. Yeah. yeah. The intervention of Zarathustra's guidance in the course of human humanity civilizations is like a golden thread that is woven into the flowing stream of history through the repeated flashing up of a bright star. Mm, beautiful. Oh, so beautiful. Beautiful. And part of that yeah. comes out of this Zoroaster, 
Zarathustra being's presence in the life of these two Jesus boys is why yeah. this figure comes up. So, do you want to uh, just do a quick, a quick, <laughs> a quickie on download? That? I can the... read my two columns if you want, or we can just you can just go into it. Well, it it basically has to do with the mystery of why in the Luke Gospel the genealogy is different than in the Matthew Gospel. And most scholars just say, well, they got their sources mixed up. Isn't that remarkable, by the way? Yeah. That that's happened for so long when the scholars... Okay, so now you have some humanist uh, scholars who are interpreting the Bible, but when the scholars say that this is the the word and presence of God and it's delivering all this. Yes. Yeah, so right. right. Uh, yeah. But just like, but, let's but this brush part the, was, yeah, yeah, those differences were just mistakes. That's right. So, uh, and that connects to your saying that we should be taking it even more literal. Yes. Right. Uh, which is really how then Rudolf Steiner took that up and was able to perceive in the differences of the genealogies that are revealed in those two different Gospels, and the fact that, for example, the Jesus child in the Matthew Gospel is born in a house, and the Luke child is born in like a stable or a cave, he took that seriously, and was able to also perceive in that two different beings called Jesus. One, in the Matthew Gospel, this Zoroaster, this golden star being that the kings were devoted to, that was incarnated and founded the Zarathustrian religion, but then came back as this Jesus child in order to help the formation of what I call the grail Jesus, <laughs> the chalice Jesus, which is the Luke Jesus, who goes all the way back to Adam and to God in the genealogy, which is not the case in in Matthew. The Luke Jesus then is influenced, so to speak, by Zarathustra coming into his being and for 18 years preparing this very naive, childlike, special, special cosmic being that is in Jewish esotericism called the Adam Kadman or the celestial human, or as Jesus calls himself, the son of man. That is the first human being that then becomes through Zarathustra's help. And after Zarathustra then leaves in the conversation with Mary, this is all um, out of the perceptions and revelations from Rudolf Steiner. Then this Luke Jesus, or this Nathan Jesus, or this Adam Cadman son of man being, this true human being, at the baptism becomes the vessel for the incarnation of the Elohim, Christ. And the Zarathustra being then helps reveal Christianity Mm -hmm. as a normal incarnating human but is not to be confused with Jesus Christ. Right. Yeah, which is, the if you think of the difference between the kings visiting one Jesus child and the shepherds visiting the other Jesus child, if you sit with the difference between a king, mm. a benevolent king, a magi king, and a shepherd, you can start feeling the difference between mm. these two. And 
So in some ways, the beginning of this conversation was a recapitulation of that Mm. saying we had these other beings and traditions meet us Mm. to clear the path so we could absorb the presence of something that we are meant to meet. Now, Hmm. I'm not saying that we're the Nathanic Jesus, <laughs> but but the but the <laughs> just but, to be clear, that's how rumors get started, folks. Right. But the but the 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 showing of the way, and then the I giving of strength. I can yeah. see that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and he's connected to all human beings because he's yes. the first. Right. He's the original, and that's why Paul says we were chosen in him before the foundations of the world. Yeah, I mean that that was a beautiful like story for me, a revelation for me when I came across this thing that was cuz I you know, I'd studied as an undergrad, you know, took these religious studies courses, understanding the Bible, mm. and it was that. It was like, mm. well, why do they do this and not, why do they say this in one and this and the other? And it was just kind of swept away, but then seeing oh, um they're both true and there's a connection between them and it matters. And also, there's a relationship between the two Gospels, that the Gospels meet each other. They're not separate. They're not separated from each other, floating in space, but actually, right. they meet each other over, over Mark. <laughs> that's right. You know, I, I, think that Mark, that's, right. I think that's beautiful. And then, you know, and then... Uh, John takes it away. Well, there's, it, <laughs> and maybe that's something to to start to end on. But there is, you know, in 1945, after Rudolf Steiner had already said this, there was discovered in the Nagamandi Gnostic Gospels this fragment that talks about the two messiahs needing to come together. Yeah, I mean that's so stunning, right? That so much of what is discovered afterwards in official religious texts um, are are things that Rudolf Steiner and other esotericists had said without the knowledge of that. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, the, the two Jesus children. I think some other people had said the same thing, um, aside from Steiner. But obviously, he's developing it the most. That's um, right. But but very often, it's it's. It, it, we should also clarify: there is one Jesus Christ. That's right. Yes, and that's often not understood. <laughs> no, right. That's that's also confusing to people. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, listen. Um, obviously, I knew we weren't going to exhaust the mysteries together today, Jonah Evans. But I am so grateful to have you here to sit with you and to talk and um, to approach how these mysteries show up in our lives. And I hope that it's been. Uh, warm and 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 good for all of you who are listening to is this sort of entryway into an exploration of esoteric christianity uh begins on the show so thanks for starting this with me jonah evans i'm very grateful to meet you i'm very grateful to be in ireland with you and thank you for having me <laughs> thank you <laughs> uh, thank you so much for listening everyone bye okay. now bye-bye <laughs>